Greetings and welcome to Just My Opinion. I am your host, Ken Lambert. Today, um, we're going to pick up uh, where we left off in our interview in part two uh, with uh, Jeremy Baudet, uh, which is part of our interview series. Um, and uh, we're going to pick up uh, right where uh, we left off in uh, part two, talking about uh, post-election uh, 2020, the debt, the economy, and even China. So enjoy. And Trump is in the process of, of slowly, through a very uh, imperfect and ham-fisted process of... Who do you think sold in this chain? Come on, you, you know as, as well as I do. He wants to get in there and clean it all up. Who do you think's telling him, don't do it? Don't do it. When you say clean up, what do you mean? I, I mean, Trump wants to go in there and, and squash it and put it to rest and, and make it go away. He and, and, and he thinks that, that it's the right thing to do. And, oh, and, and oh the, the rioters, yeah. you mean. The rioters, yeah. you mean. It, and, um, and, and I'm glad he hasn't because, the, uh, you know, and I'm glad that he keeps saying, just invite me in. <laughs> just invite me in and I'll I'll come in here and clean it all up on just invite me in. Um but be beautiful. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um he has so he, he has he has surrounded himself with some good people and I can't tell you specifically who they are but I know that there are are many members of his administration that are fully endorsed by the Federalist Society and other conservative-leaning organizations, a lot of eggheads that are very wonky about these things. And they, it's, I mean, it couldn't be more clear that, you know, federalism is there for a reason. And if they want to go into Portland and they want to burn down the local ice cream shop or they want to burn down, you know, the local state house or if they want to burn down the local firehouse... It's up to Portland to defend those areas. But if they want to burn down a federal building or they want to burn down a post office, have at it, Trump. You know, do whatever it is that you need to do to keep the federal government's property safe. And I don't think there's any one person that's jerking his chain, but I think because I don't think any one person could do it. Um, he's too big an animal. I think he needs he sits down with his cabinet and they're like, listen. This is what you can do. And if you do anything else, you, they're going to try to paint you as fascist. But if you do anything else than this, you are going to be effectively acting in a fascist way. And if the people of Portland want their police stations burned down, then that's their decision. And all the smart people are going to get out of Portland awfully quick. Right. And they're going to move somewhere else and be smart over there. Okay. Now, if Biden wins, socialism? No. No, no, no. Is no, that no. is is that just a? Uh, I mean, I mean, are they even going to go green? I mean, is is it going to be as? I, I mean, just the rhetoric around it is the trillions of dollars spent on uh, on being more liberal and more progressive than they ever been. Um, sure. So, and I mean, and that's. Um, I I guess I mean I guess you could uh, even though I don't necessarily think that there's any such thing as democratic socialism, but I guess if they want to hang a label on it, 
Um, I mean, I guess my question is, how far do you yeah. think do you go? Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, if there's democratic socialism, then there's democratic execution. There you go. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's yeah. that's. I mean, it, just because you put Democrat on something doesn't automatically make it. Just because we all vote to kill the witch in town doesn't make it okay, right? I mean, that's that's um, the misnomer. So, so how far do you think they go? Um, I mean, uh, obviously they're going to bring back. Uh, you know, Obamacare, right? They're gonna, or there's gonna be some type of. You okay, know, so, so you mean this is like a winner take all, all, all three branches go? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I you know, I Ruth Bader Ginsburg immediately retires, right? <laughs> and and so they pack the court, right? Yeah. Um, or and and they're even talking about adding to it. They're talking about yeah, you know, adding like four more or J um. Know. Yeah, FDR tried doing that when the court started ruling against him for his his NRA. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he threatened to like make it. I think yeah, he was gonna bump it. He was gonna bump it up a lot. He was gonna bump it to like seventeen, yeah. and he was gonna try to pack the court with a whole bunch of people that you know would live forever miraculously. Right. He'd be he'd be uh, appointing first year law students <laughs> that would get confirmed upon graduation, <laughs> and then and then they'd live for seventy more years. Um, so I think that um, they are going to go as far as it, it – they, they do not want to go all the way. They are, they are not ready to go all the way. They're not, they've seen Venezuela. They've seen Cuba. They've seen North Korea. And um, they know that, you know, socialism – and they see that, you know, all of the, the Scandinavian countries are backing off their democratic socialist position um, – They've dropped their tax rates. They've, you know, loosened the, the the business restrictions and the requirements and all that stuff. So I think that they will go as far as um, they'll go as far as they can. But I don't think that they have as much leash as people think they do. Um, I think and the other thing is I think that the government is really incompetent. And so I think that there's only one tool that they can use to get the job done that they want. And that tool is just extremely ineffective. You're hammering a nail in with a screwdriver. And so the government itself is this, just this gigantic lumbering beast that even in the best quote unquote situations just works immeasurably slowly. And by the time all three branches switch and it's a year, and they spend time uh, undoing all of the things, or doing, redoing all the things that Obama did, and then Trump undid. Um, you know, there's going to be a huge wave election in the opposite direction. The House is going to go back the other way. Perhaps the Senate will as well, depending on who's up for re-election. Right. And then it's going to be a lame duck situation for the remaining two years. And then we go through another election. That's why it bothers me so much when I see executives taking such decisive, powerful action as they're taking. Because, again, if the president can write a document and then sign it, and then all of a sudden everybody's going to get $400 a week for the next four months or whatever, that means that the next president can sign it and give everyone $4,000 a month. There's there's nothing in the catalog of first principles that's going to prevent the next person 
from carrying the ball even further down the field or picking it up and running it twice as far in the other direction. And that is the problem with centralized monarchical power. You know, people wanted to call George Washington his majesty. Mm -hmm. And he did not approve of that. He thought it would be, that's just a title. But now you have people that carry the title of president of the United States that are acting regardless of the side of the aisle that they're on. Mm-hmm. Anything that the government do, does for you at the drop of a hat, it can take away or it can do more of. And you can't allow that precedent to be set. You have to say, and as much as I don't like it, as much as I, I'd love Trump to hand me a check for $100 million. Hey, buddy, I'm over here. You can give it to me anytime you want. Right. But that has to be done through the proper channels. And the truth is, is that the process is incredibly slow and incredibly difficult on purpose. It's so nothing gets done. Because nothing, most things shouldn't get done at the national level. Most things should get locally. All right. So, do you think the the, the market or in um, uh, the economy? I mean, so boy, it'll, we've, yeah, racked so up, we've racked up a, a huge, huge debt with uh, all through this pandemic thing. Yeah. And you know, and, and um, as serious as a disease as it was, this. Somebody has to be held responsible for, I, I think eventually, as all things do, eventually people are going to find out that uh, people are playing politics uh, with this whole thing and running up a huge debt and making people stay at home when they probably didn't have to and um, and shutting down the economy and running up a huge debt that you're daughters yeah. are going to have to try to pay for someday. Yeah. Um I I mean d- d- can the can the market can the um can the US economy can our worthless do- dollar you know I mean I don't know about you but I've been thinking about buying some gold lately, you know <laughs> what I mean? You should buy uh, now. You know, uh in uh but did I mean do you think the economy can uh withstand uh even um uh, uh, four years of, uh, you know, democratic rule again. Uh. So I think in the short term, four years or less, I think that the United States economy is okay. I think no matter who wins, I think that it, there are situations that make it better or worse. But in general, for the at least the next four years, I think the American economy is going to be okay. I think long term, uh, we've already hit the iceberg. Yeah. I think, you know, the ship is just sinking and everybody's listening to the to the four Mirror piece. God to thee. <laughs> <laughs> everybody's just, you know, listening and, and I think we're still in denial and I think the ship isn't particularly low on the water yet. And so people aren't particularly worried. But I think that this coronavirus thing, you know, some people are down on G deck and they're looking out the window and they're not at the water, they're under the water now. And it's starting to wake some people up. And I think that, I think, you know, I think that we are, in my opinion, the American economy long-term is past the point of no return. I think right now, you know, when I talk to all of my acquaintances, which are mostly people that have maintained employment throughout, you know, Mm -hmm. the current situation Mm -hmm. that have been able to be flexible with their schedules and who are able to maintain a relatively stable middle and lower middle class lifestyle. When I talk to them and I ask them what they did with their $4,000, $5,000, $6,000 Trump checks from the stimulus, they say, I didn't, I didn't do anything. 
I'm, I'm still holding it. I'm holding on to the cash because they don't know what's going to happen. So most of the money, not most, a large chunk of the money from the last stimulus hasn't even been spent yet. A lot of the money went to places that it probably shouldn't have gone. Mm-hmm. Multi-billion dollar corporations uh, in, in large investment banks and whatnot got the money. What's going to happen is at some point, you know, despite the fact that all that money has been pumped into the American economy over the last, let's say, four to six months, we haven't seen inflation at this point because a lot of people are holding on to that money thinking that it might continue to rain or it might start raining harder for them. Mm-hmm. But a point is going to come in which, let's just say things stay where they are right now. If, if things stay where they are right now, people are going to be like, okay, it's, it's okay for me to go out and, and spend the money now. And people are going to start spending the money and inflation is going to kick in. And then it becomes this self-perpetuating scenario where somebody that's, let's say, uh, uh, someone that's a boomer that's entering retirement, they're going to start to realize that the money that they have today is going to be worth less tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And that's going to drive them to buy gold, buy assets, spend the money. Even if you're buying a new refrigerator with it or putting a new back deck on your house or buying a new car or because it's worth more as that asset than it is as cash in their pocket. And that is when things start to roll out of control. And it's just a question of when that is going to happen. It's not a question of if. It's absolutely a question of when. You can't pump. Let me ask you a quick trivia question. If you were to take a million $1 bills, okay? Okay. Getting my wallet here to get a... I don't have a million dollars. You got dollars. a million there? I don't have a million dollars oh. in here, but I got a couple ones. All right, you were to take a million $1 bills. What have I got here? Four. I've got four $1 bills here. And you were to stack them up just like this. A million dollars. So I'm, I'm holding it long side down, and I'm holding them vertically so they're standing up. How thick would that stack be? How long would it be, let's say, in feet? A million dollars, a million $1 bills. I don't know. Pretty pretty big. It would be 358 feet. Wow. One million dollars, 358 feet. Okay, that's 120 meters. That's 20% longer than the home straight on a track. Okay, how much do you think a billion is? Oh, uh, it would have to be... Hundred times that, right? Or a uh, thousand times that, or sixty-eight miles. A trillion would be sixty-eight thousand miles. And the Republicans want to spend a trillion dollars. What is that? Circle the Earth three times, sixty-eight thousand miles. Okay, so, like. This is such an unconscionably large sum of money, and yet that's the low ball, right? The Democrats want to spend three or four times that amount. So we've already hit the iceberg. This is already, the numbers have gotten so big that the human mind can't even conceive of the amount of shit that we're currently in right now. I, 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 the, even that's the, the only thing keeping the dollar afloat is and, the fact and, that people don't get it. And, and the thing about it that is even scarier is that we don't have it. Yeah, it doesn't you exist. You know what I mean? It doesn't yeah, exist. It's, we're borrowing it from from our children and our children's and, and, children. And, and and they're just printing it. 
Yeah, they're not even doing that anymore. At least then they could be like, well, we're limited by the amount of paper and ink that we have, right? At least then there's a certain limit to it. Now they're just clicking zeros on a keyboard in a bank. I mean, that's literally all they're doing right now. It's even simpler than that. They're just adding zeros and moving decimal points. That's all they're doing. It doesn't even take the effort that it did before. It takes time to print money and check it and cut it up and stack it and count it and store it, right? It takes up space. I mean... Mm -hmm. What little mooring we had to keep us from things going completely crazy is gone completely out the window. It's entirely destroyed. Um, now, does it matter that so does the rest of the world? Well, there. I mean, I mean, you're you're always going to have China who's lurking in the background, like uh, Bella Lugosi or whatever. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? Um, and the, the, but. They can sit there and call in their marker all they want. Yeah. And um, so what, if we don't pay, you're going to nuke us? You know what I mean? That's not going to happen either. Um, so what the the debt, the you, number, you, and, and all that stuff, it, like you just said, it's, it's, it, people can, can't wrap their heads around it because it's a, such a huge, huge number. Um, but does the market... Does the American uh, dollar, as it were, uh, all right? So, say before this happened, a um, hundred dollars was worth a hundred dollars, and say today it's only worth ninety. You mean a hundred dollars of value? Right. Okay. You know what I mean? And so, so to say, say today it's only worth mm. ninety. Mm-hmm. Um, is America's ninety dollars worth of buying power still going to be? what it what it was i mean the the thing about it is that's what we've been doing that's what we've been doing that has what that is has contributed to america keeping is it's it has been the world currency right it's been the standard world currency right and so people have confidence in that right before it was like oh my god it's an american dollar right oh my god it's backed by the full faith and credit of the united states government it's a world superpower they're always on the the cutting edge the bleeding edge of of technology and advancement and the american dream blah 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 right there was a high level of faith in it right well now it's more like well the dollar can't go anywhere because if the dollar you know every other currency except for a few tiny ones, is essentially chained together with the American dollar. And if the dollar goes over the waterfall, they're all going over the waterfall too. So they're incentivized to act like we haven't hit the Titanic because they're on the same ship with us. Right. Right? They're just not the captain. I mean, but don't you think they're, uh, too, that they're they're saying, well, who am I going to sell my cheap, crappy pen to? You know what I mean? The, 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 you, you mean the, the, the Chinese the, are saying we oh, need a market? The, Chi- the Chinese, everybody. Okay, they're all. all the, I can talk you about know, that. I yep. want to have. I, I want to have them wear my sneakers. Yep. Um. You know, and and that's why the the Chinese say pick the the NBA as uh, the who they want to sponsor because they know that they'll wear their shit mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they know that they'll they'll take their money yep. and stuff. And um, don't don't you think? That as much as we need, and and I would love to see this country get back into, um, as you know, I I was in manufacturing for 30 years, and uh, I would love to see this country get back into so we're making our own shit. Mm -hmm. And we're not having it made somewhere else and bringing it back here and selling it or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but don't you think that the rest of the world benefits from the U.S. dollar not not going hitting the the the, the iceberg and going down, but uh, for us to maintain our buying power because we're so stupid, we'll buy all their shit. Mm. That so the asset of the let's call it the. Um, uh, the American consumption spirit, right? The spirit of spending, yeah. right? The, the 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 white picket fence in the house and the 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 Toyota or the Ford in the driveway, you know, whatever, right? And then of course all the cheap toys made in China and made in Taiwan and all that stuff. Okay, so the United States is somewhere in the vicinity of three hundred thirty to three hundred fifty million people. Um, Middle class, you know, if you take the middle, oh, let's just take the middle 50% just to make it easy, right? You're not, you're not the bottom quartile and you're not in the top quartile. Um, so that would be what, 160 to 170 million people, somewhere in that vicinity. That is smaller than the current, than the number of people that have joined the middle class in China alone in the last 10 years. So it's no longer a novel idea to be middle class and to want to have consumptive spending anymore. China has a growing middle class. India has a growing middle class. And the populations of those two countries are so high that even if the middle class is only 2% of their population, it's the equivalent of the entire American middle class. And guess what? They don't have to ship it. They don't have to ship it from China 6,000 miles across the Pacific Ocean to sell it. Do you think that their um, their populations, whether it's India or China, do you think they're as spendthrifts crazy? They're going to, at the, the, to the Walmart uh, Blue Light Special or whatever you want to call it. You know what I mean? <clears throat> that Americans are known for, um, if Walmart's got it, and it's on sale, they're going, and they're going to get it, and they're going to mm -hmm. buy it, mm -hmm. and they, they don't care if it, it even if it, it costs them probably what they should have stuck aside for their kids' education or whatever. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, we, uh, we're, we're, we're buy happy, we're spend happy, and that's why everybody sends their shit here, because we'll buy it. Mm -hmm. We'll take it. We'll, we'll, we'll spend it. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and and I think that the the in order to fill to, to feed that beast of uh, all these other countries and and the Japanese found out when they in in the seventies when they started shipping their cars here, hey, if you make it priced right and uh, it fits right, we'll the, the situation it. right now, yep, they'll we'll take, take it. it. Yep, um, and that's slowing down. Japanese car makers aren't selling as many cars today as they were in the 1970s. They're shipping cars to China, to India, to Eastern Europe, well, they, which they is don't, now and they're almost smart. 30 they years. They're smart. They don't want to miss any of the market. But, I, I mean, um, you st come on, there's there's still plenty of Toyotas. There's plenty of Hondas and stuff on the road. In sure, the sure. They're but, flatlining, though. It's not it's not a growing segment anymore. I, I, I agree. But they're but they're also somebody's gonna make something else in it whether it's a, a car and I you know and I know that you see this is as far as a, a lot of cars because in, in the business that you're in um, though 
you want everybody to have a car and 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 hopefully everybody needs <laughs> parts, right? Um, but they're they also looking at, at like I said, I think the world needs to have a place to dump their crap. And and it doesn't matter, it doesn't have to be um it doesn't have to be a Jaguar. You know, or it doesn't have to be um the best laptop. You get, there's a market for crap and if we if we let this economy if the world let this uh, economy collapse you know and I I hate to hate to say the thing and because it totally goes against uh, the way that I think and I think it should be um, but some some things are too big to collapse and I think that with the whole world and and too many Indian people and too many Chinese people have been um, um, poor to be as foolish with their freaking money as the given average day American is. You're 100 percent right. You yes. Know? When when you look at the cultural breakdown of countries that are transitioning from a third world or in the process of transitioning from a third world into a first world, I don't know what we'll call them second world nations or whatever. They're right there in the transition right phase. You see a generational gap. You see older generations, much more conservative much more, you know, in the RK theory, they fall much more on the K side of that. All about saving their money, right? First generation immigrants, you see here, right? Focusing on education, focusing on family, no vacations, no extraneous spending, right? By the time you get to their kids, things have loosened right up. By the time you get to their grandkids, things have loosened up incredibly. And now they've fully incorporated themselves into the American economy, full consumerism. And oftentimes they don't even speak the native language by the time they become adults because they go to an American school where they speak English. Mm -hmm. And it just becomes a nag to try to continue speaking their native Chinese, Spanish, whatever it is inside their own household. Let me share with you one interesting fact that literally just hit. So in my line of work, we do a lot of global comparisons, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't talk about price so much as we talk about cost. So we're always looking at global and regional market trends in relation to raw material costs, in relation to labor rates, in relation to overhead expenses, utilities, rent, electricity, that kind of stuff, right? And something happened very recently when I did a labor cost comparison between China and Mexico. It is now more expensive to manufacture something in China than it is in Mexico. On labor. On labor. On labor? On labor. We now pay the average wage for standard... I'm not going to say highly skilled. I'm not going to say no skilled. That middle of the road sort of manufacturing level, right? Mm -hmm. These guys aren't carpenters and welders, mm -hmm. right? But they're not grunts either. They're line level. They're exactly line level operators make between mm, 25 cents and 75 cents an hour more in China than they do in Mexico. Wow. So our China is now next door and we call it Mexico and yeah. it's a lot warmer. So that's a huge shift that's causing. I mean, I can speaking from personal experience experience. It's causing a massive shift 
and everyone's looking at it and they're like, yeah, you know, screw China. Like tariffs drive them out. The cost of their labor is going up. They have a growing middle class, blah, 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 blah. The, the average line worker in China makes a higher wage than I made at my first job. Wow. It's over $5 an hour. Wow. Average. Burdened. Now, do you think that the the do you think that the, the market in China is is opened enough so that that say if uh you know their uh middle class wants to start driving a Chevy or they want to start driving a, a Honda it, is is their market open enough uh, enough for so I mean, isn't hasn't yes. has been uh, yes. Trump's biggest bitch BM, is that the, yes. the, the trade deficit being so bad that we'll take their shit, but they don't want to take ours? Okay, a couple of comments on that. So a trade deficit isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? You have a trade deficit with your grocery store. Mm-hmm. Are you worse off? No, you're not worse off, right? Thank God they still decide to take the fake money that we continue to throw at them, right? In exchange right. for apples and bananas and food. Um, so I don't, I, I don't, subscribe to the to the idea to the notion that simply because we have a trade deficit with another country that means that we're at some kind of a inherent disadvantage or that we're getting taken to the cleaners or anything like that mm-hmm. um in regards to the first part of your question sorry can you repeat it for me no <laughs> <laughs> i've already moved on oh okay all right well in regards to, I think I remember what it was. In regards to the first part of your question, that had to do with whether we would continue, because you talked about other, you know, Hondas getting right. sent. Are they going to? So, my understanding, and I'm by no means an expert, but my understanding is that there are still some very fresh wounds, historical wounds between. The Japanese, the Koreans, the Indians, the Chinese, Mm -hmm. you know, again, I'm by no means an expert, but there is still a lot of bad blood culturally between them. And so my instincts are telling, you know, China has plenty of their own internal manufacturers for automobiles. My guess is is that you are not going to drive down the streets of Shanghai and see... uh, a Honda or a Toyota. You're not going to see a Kia that's a Korean company, mm-hmm. right? But you, I will tell you, you are going to find Fords. We support the manufacture of, of uh, a Ford vehicle in China. We support the manufacture of BMW vehicles in China. And, of course, there's the German auto, not just BMW, but, you know, Audi and their entire family, VW. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Audi's part of VW. The whole VW family, all manufacture locally in China sell to Chinese citizens from China. And it's the same thing globally. You know, it's the, the automotive global footprint is is growing substantially. So, you know, in, in Mexico or in the U.S. or sometimes in Canada, they manufacture automobiles for that area. In Brazil, they manufacture for South America. In Eastern, the Eastern part of the European continent, they manufacture for Europe. And then, of course, in, in China, um, they manufacture for Asia primarily. So um, they produce enough. Their economy is, I'm not going to say it's strong because it's definitely being propped up by the government, Mm -hmm. but they have enough, they have enough internal demand and they have enough resources 
that they they've they're already they've already got momentum just by sheer number though right yeah. i mean when you have that many people number and manipulation yeah, you know what i mean that that uh you know um you know as long i mean it, it, it's 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 not Cuba, you know what I mean. Where where uh, the the average citizen is just uh, probably can't afford to have a car. Here, so here's another um, good example specific to my profession. So I'm specifically involved in the strategic sourcing of raw materials uh, right now, specifically related to aluminum. Uh, 6,000 series aluminum specifically. When you look at global market trends, production and demand rates, if you look at a chart that maps out, let's say the last 15 years of supply and demand of 6,000 series aluminum in the United States, you see it around uh, between two and three million tons a year. And up until about four or five years ago, there's that nice little supply and demand dance you would expect to see, right? Mm-hmm. Each one, you know, demand being the leading indicator and supply being the lagging indicator. And it makes this nice little helical structure and it looks really pretty. And then about five years ago, the two lines split and demand is above supply and they stay somewhere between 250,000 and 500,000 tons a year. And it just holds steady all the way up to this year and actually projecting into the future about the same. Meaning that the United States, in the United States, production of 6,000 series aluminum has dropped below demand and we have to be importing material. If you look at a model of China, it's that beautiful, even tighter, way tighter than the United States. Very, very controlled, right? Very, you can tell it's very controlled. Dance, that helical dance back and forth between supply and demand. And it is in full takeoff mode. And they are somewhere between 6, 6 million and 7 million metric tons a year. So demand and supply in China is three times what it is in the United States. So already, they're still a second world country. They still have, as a percentage of their population, tons and tons of poor people, desperately poor people, par- mm-hmm. far poorer than anybody in the United States could ever even imagine being, right? And they're producing three times as much aluminum, and they don't have that separation, right? It's that really closely related, and it's continuing to go up. It's not stopping. It's not stopping. And, and, and what, I mean... What's driving driving it? Is it is it just because, um, because their their average uh, citizen is making more money? Yeah. And um, so there's yeah something's got to drive it, right? Yeah, you're right. So so two things are driving it. So there is this um, there is that same dance between supply and demand that's going on. There's a similar dance going on between labor you know, spending consumption, like, and, and, and wages and labor rates, right? Because as the labor rates go up, more money people make, more money in their pocket, the more extra income they have, the more money that they can spend. But up to a certain point, those wages are going to have to level off, right? Otherwise, it's no longer going to be financially advantageous to produce in that country anymore, right? Right. So these two factors are working against each other and they have to kind of balance each other out in this relatively stable way. However, China 
is making significant investments in other areas of the world, other areas of the world that are undeveloped or are in a much, much more undeveloped state, Africa. Huge investments in Africa. I used to be involved in the mining industry, mm -hmm. and I would work with mining consultants, and they would go to West Africa two, three, four times a year, and they'd be like, I'm, go I'm driving through this village in freaking West Africa, and I come upon this work site that I'm going to be looking at putting a contract together for to do a a particular, you know, they're a bunch of millwrights. So they're doing some kind of a setup job for a mineral processing plan or whatever. And they're like, it's like a village of Chinese people in the middle of the African jungle. Wow. And they're mining for whatever could be gold, could be some other type of industrial metal or whatever. And it's like a little piece of China in the, in the middle of the African wilderness. I think it's, um, we talked a little bit about how um, China is is leveraging influence globally, and uh, I'm going to feel like such an idiot. I think it's the island of Sri Lanka. Have you heard about what they're doing in in I believe it's Sri Lanka. It might be it might be another island in in southeastern Asia though. It might not be India, but um, there is an island in Southeastern Asia that was looking for significant economic development. The political structure had changed. New people had been voted into office and they wanted to grow, baby, grow, 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 grow. Mm -hmm. The only problem was, was they didn't have any money to invest in an airport to bring people in and out, whether that be resources being transported in and out, mail, um, workers, um, resources, whatever. And they wanted to have this, you know, tourism. It's a tropical island, tropical area. And they wanted to, I'm sorry, shipping. My mistake, not an airport. It was shipping. It was a port. Okay. And they didn't have any money to develop this advanced port. China lent them a ginormous sum of money in addition to, I believe, some resources. And they developed one of the most advanced ports uh, in the world, maybe the most advanced port in the entire world. And it is centered in this trade hub, this central area um, in the South Pacific. And, yeah, I don't think it was Sri Lanka now. And um, for whatever reason, I, I don't have time to go into the specific details, but um, the economy started to slip. And written into the fine print of that agreement with China was basically, hey, if you don't meet your requirements to pay back this money that you owe us for this beautiful port, we are going to take control of the port. We're going to repossess this port from you. And recently they lapsed and China took full control and possession over the port. And so now China has full influence, full control over the strategic trading post located in what could conceivably be the middle of nowhere if you were to look at it on a map. But from a trade standpoint, it's at a crossroads. It's at a very important place. Well, China didn't invade the country. They didn't enslave the population and assassinate the leader. And yet now they have control over this major technologically advanced port. And that's how you do it. That's how they use capitalism against... There's no Chinese company that's selling any American asset that they have right now. No rich person in China is selling any of their stocks, no matter what it does. If the stock plummets, 
the Chinese government is just going to compensate the business owners so they continue to hang on to the assets. There, there are Chinese companies that are owned by the government that are sitting on empty buildings, that are paying taxes on empty buildings that are entirely worthless, that are worth a portion of what they owe on them. They're refusing to get out from underneath them because they do not want to sell. They do not want to lose one little piece of leverage that they possibly have over the American economy. There was talk of, well, God, if Trump goes too hard on this, maybe China just decides to dump every asset that they have in the United States of America. Well, they could conceivably do that if they really wanted to. I don't think it's in their best interest to do that at this point. Okay, we're going to leave it there for today, and uh, soon we'll be back with part four. Until next time, America, for just my opinion, I'm Ken Lambert.